You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so let's jump into uh, Isaiah 61, verse 10. And what I want to remind us here, right, is that um, this scripture uh, is being spoken by the anointed one, right, of Isaiah 61, uh, verse 1, where it says that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has a, a, anointed me, right? So, so we went to, to sort of some, some links, the first sermon, uh, to establish that that person that is speaking there is actually Jesus, right? And so when we arrive at this portion of the chapter this morning, the same thing is true, that Jesus is speaking um, in these verses to his people, and this is what Jesus has to say. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so what, what we're going to see here is, is, is fairly unique in that for, for much of the book of Isaiah, it is Isaiah speaking the words of the Lord on the Lord's behalf, Right? Um, and most of them are a word, essentially, um, uh, of, of judgment or, or pointing something out in terms of like, this is what's taking place, here's what's going to be my response to it, and it's all very um, sort of particular and specific. And yet what we get here, right, in that we, we, we've kind of seen what Jesus has come to do, right, and that he's coming to bring good news to, to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to... Um, to give people a, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, right? He's coming to do all of these things. But here we get to see sort of his, his reaction or his emotional state, right, in, in response to what it is that he has come to do. And so what we see is we see Jesus rejoicing, right? Or, or not just speaking, not just rejoicing, but maybe even singing, right, a hymn of praise to God in response to what it is that the Lord has called, commissioned him to do for the sake of his people. And I want to zero in really just on, on, on two words because I think they're, they're exceedingly important. But, but what I, I want us to make no mistake about here right, is, is again, how it is essentially that, that Jesus is in, in, terms of, in terms of his emotional state, in terms of where he is at um, maybe even physically in his response to what it is that the Lord is going to do, these great promises of Isaiah chapter 61. Because I think what happens often when we read through Scripture is either one of two things is happening. Either you're trying not to fall asleep or you're trying to just make it to like that, whatever you were supposed to read to for that day so that you can read through the Bible in a year that's actually like been a 10-year plan now, you know? And so you're just kind of like, I just got to push through this. And we, and we gloss over, right? We gloss over some of these key details. But when, when it tells us here, when Jesus himself tells us that he is greatly rejoicing in the Lord, that his soul, that in the, in the innermost part of his being and who he is, he is exulting in the Lord. Um, make no mistake, Jesus is excited, right? And I'm like, not, not Baptist, Presbyterian excited, like charismatic excited, you know? Like, things might look a little crazy excited. Jesus is rejoicing greatly in the Lord. His soul is exulting in His God. Why? 
right? It's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I want what he's having. And this is, this is what he tells us. For he, right, God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so I want to I look at wh- what these two things are, salvation, salvation and righteousness, and, and why it is or what it is about those two things that would cause Jesus such a, such a, uh, to, to be so exuberant, to be so, um, so filled with rejoicing and exultation over um, the work of God, right? And so uh, just purely on, on like Merriam-Webster, right, definition of the word salvation, I'll, we'll go with that one first because it's listed first, right? Salvation is defined as this. Salvation is defined as rescue from harm, ruin, or loss, right? So, so rescue from harm, ruin, or loss. Now, um, Harm, ruin, and loss in a Christian worldview proceed from something that, that the Bible makes very clear for us, right? That, that harm, ruin, and loss, that those things that we experience in our, in our lives that are, that are harmful, that, that cause ruin, that cause loss, not just personally, individually, but also culturally and at large in terms of, in terms of the world, right? That all of those things, that all of those pains, that all of those injuries, that all of those difficulties come from one place. And that is that there is that there is an objective, good, moral standard that the Lord created. Right? So here's, here's what I mean by that. So when we go to Genesis, we believe, right, we really believe God when he says he creates all things, and then as soon as he's done, he says it is good, right? We really believe that that's true. So God creates all things. He creates them to work together in a certain way. There is a certain hierarchy in terms of we are like God, but we are not God. And so we are to be God's ambassadors. We are to walk in communion with God underneath His gracious reign and rule for His glory. So there's an objective, good, moral standard. And what the Bible posits for us, the whole story of the Bible, if you're ever confused as to why there's so much sort of drama and pain and hurt and, and, and just sinful, disgusting things that happen in the Bible, it's because it's painting this picture for us that our harm, that our ruin, that our loss that we experience ultimately comes from abandoning that good, objective, moral reality that God created. And so what we're saying, when we, when we use the word salvation, right, it goes, we goes much further than just the, the Merriam-Webster definition because when we look at it through a Christian lens, through a biblical lens, we recognize that, that salvation is something is needed that, that ultimately we, we really can't provide for ourselves, right? That this harm, that this ruin, that this loss proceed from an objective, good, moral standard that none of us are capable of satisfying. That's why when we go to Romans chapter 3, there's so much despair when it says, right, he's looking out over all creation, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. And then, of course, the famous verse that that most of us know, or at least have read maybe uh, an uncomfortable tract um, that says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a salvation that is, that is needed, right, from a, from a demand or from a weight that we cannot um, meet or uphold. And 
So if that is what salvation is, if it's this, if it's this rescue from harm, from ruin and loss that, that ultimately is birthed when we, when we disregard that good, moral, objective reality, um, what we could then pretty easily characterize righteousness is precisely that. That good, objective, moral reality that God has created all things righteous, but that we experience this harm, this ruin, and this loss when we abdicate that reality, when we leave that, when we neglect it. Right? According to the Bible, God supplies this moral standard, this righteousness. And this is how righteousness and salvation ultimately intermingle to cause Jesus to rejoice and to exult in his God, right? Although God supplies an objective moral standard or righteousness, he goes on to satisfy it when we can't, which is what we would call salvation. Put it this way. Last week, we zeroed in on the fact that Jesus actually took our sin from us, right? And because he actually took it, God was just and did not compromise his justice when punishing Jesus, right? So the wrath of God that was meant for us and our sin actually fell on Jesus, right? Like we we talked about that at length last week. That Jesus took upon himself sin, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, he made him who knew no sin to be, right? To like the, in his being become sin in order that you and I might become what? The righteousness of God. So if last week we zeroed in on that fact that Jesus actually took our sin, that he removed something from us, this week we zero in on the fact that Jesus not only took our sin, but also supplies for us his righteousness in exchange. And because he supplied it for us, God is just and does not compromise his justice when showing us his favor. So the favor of God that was meant for Jesus and his righteousness actually falls on us. And so salvation and righteousness intermingle in a way that is beautiful and glorious and ultimately good news that not only Jesus should, re- should rejoice over, but that we should rejoice over. Because it's very clear here. It's very clear here that if we hold to the distinct Christian worldview, if we hold to a biblical worldview, then it is impossible for us to conjure up a reality in which we can rely on our own resume or our own impressiveness in order to satisfy God's need for righteousness because we can't save ourselves. And yet the anointed one, the anointed one who has come to set the captives free, who has come to bring good news to the poor, the anointed one who has established an everlasting covenant in the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, is clothed in the garments of salvation, robed with the robe of righteousness. Even Jesus here is rejoicing in God who has given righteousness and salvation to him. And so what folly it is then when Christians get exceedingly prideful about any good that they may have been graced by God to do. Because as Ephesians 2 is very clear for us, 
It tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Our righteousness, our salvation, Jesus comes wearing and Jesus removes from himself in order to clothe us with them. That's the reality of what we celebrate in in the incarnation, right? The taking on of flesh of God himself, Jesus, is that he takes upon himself flesh, he does what we can't do, he takes his record, and he doesn't just remove or wipe clean ours, but he actually puts his on us. So Jesus is rejoicing appropriately, I would say. So Jesus rejoices in God. He rejoices in what the Lord is doing. And now now he's going to rejoice in something that that maybe would seem kind of odd, especially since you and I, again, kind of stand at at a privileged juncture in history um, in that we know, right, we know that this garment of salvation, this robe of righteousness, is ultimately going to be something that, that, that leads to excruciating difficulty, pain, for, for the anointed one, for Jesus, right? And that while this all sounds glorious and good, there's a reality that's coming that's, you know, we celebrate it at Easter. So this is a serious, a wonderful, magnificent awe-inspiring, miraculous, powerful, historic, matchless work that Jesus has come to do. What a weighty, what a momentous occasion, cosmic in scope, cosmic in importance, making right, right, all things that have gone wrong in Him. And I think because of this, uh, we, we generally experience sort of a somber or a sober feeling as we reflect on the great cost that it, that it took to redeem us, right? As we think about not just Isaiah 61, but then we remember that, oh wait, Jesus the Anointed One is the one who experienced God's wrath on my behalf, who was turned away, forsaken, so that we might be accepted. And I think if we were to, you know, not that we want to do this all too often, but if we were to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, and if we were to sort of be given or come to that moment where we understood our responsibility, what we had been, what we had been called to do, what we had been tasked with doing, that if given that same responsibility, we would probably approach it, Right? With, with maybe more duty and obligation than like love and rejoicing. You know what I'm saying? Like to put, to put it very simply and, and in, in a totally different universe, right? Um, we've all been told to clean our room at one time. Um, and that was something that we did because we knew we had to. But it wasn't necessarily like, I'm having a party in here, you know? But how does Jesus approach it? Right? How does Jesus approach it? This is what Isaiah 61.10 tells us. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So this means that Jesus, the anointed one, is not dressed for a funeral, he's dressed for a party. He isn't dressed for battle, he's dressed for a wedding. He isn't clothed in despair, he's clothed for celebration. 
Jesus is worshiping God and dressing up to celebrate a feast of greater magnitude than we could ever imagine, where we may have approached this calling with a sense of begrudging duty, Jesus joyfully accepts even with the knowledge of Isaiah 53, right? And if you're not familiar with the Bible, I'm going to read a portion of it. It's, it's typically read around, around Advent, around Christmas, right? But this is what Isaiah 53 says. It's talking about Jesus, right? So, um, Where this all sounds really, really great, this is what Isaiah 53 says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So if this is like the ultimate unpleasant go clean your room statement. You will be despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Does Jesus go... Okay, sure, I'll do it because you said so. No. Right? It tells, us that, it tells us that he rejoices in the Lord, that his soul exalts in God, that he is clothed with the garments of salvation, that he is robed in the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Hebrews 12 would maybe put it more simply for us when it says this, for the joy, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what I hope that we do today, I think, you know, I think we've talked sort of at length very, very kind of practically about maybe, you know, what the Lord has called us to do and in light of the, the Advent texts and things like that. And I think this morning the Lord is just calling us to rest. And I think the Lord is calling us to, um, to look at Him maybe in a way that, that we haven't seen Him in a long time, even though I, I think that this is, this is His day in, day out reality, frame of mind, mindset, heart towards His people, those who would consider themselves followers of Jesus. Right? At Advent, we always say we want to celebrate, celebrate peace, hope, love, and joy. And we want to celebrate those on a, on a broader right, like world scale and that, that's what we long for the world to experience. That's what we long uh, to be a reality, to, to be a part of a, a society, a community, a, a, a world, a humanity that is characterized by those words. Right, Peace, love, joy, hope. And for the Christian this morning, this is where those things that we celebrate at Advent come from. Right? This is the seat of those things. This is where those things are found. This is the fountain from which you drink those realities. Right? We find peace because where there was broken fellowship in Christ's work, it is restored through His righteous record that's given to you. The robe of righteousness that Jesus takes off and places on you is the means by which you experience not just peace with God, but peace with one another. 
We experience hope because God's decrees actually come to pass, right? That because when we, again, we standing in the, at the privileged juncture of history that we find ourselves in, get to read Isaiah chapter 61, and then we get to go to John chapter 1, where it says that, <laughs> that the, the Word has taken on flesh. Behold, the Lamb of God come to take our sins away. We can... We can connect those dots and recognize that when God says He's going to do something, He will do it. So we can have hope that when God, Jesus Himself, says He's coming to make all things new, He will do it. So we have peace and we have hope and we have, we have joy, right? Because no matter what may come, in all of our happiness, Jesus is better. And in all of our sorrows, Jesus is enough. Because again, we know that despite the fact that maybe some things that we walk through right now are unpleasant at best, horrific at worst, we will ultimately experience the great joy of rejoicing in our God, exulting our God in the same way that Jesus is doing so here. Again, not because of anything that we've done, but because the robe of righteousness, the garment of salvation has been placed upon us, given to us as our old and filthy robes were removed and cast upon Christ, never to be seen again. And most of all, and most wonderfully, and most conducive to our rest this morning, we experience love because we are not just tolerated by God, but we are rejoiced over. As Jesus comes down from glory to dwell among broken peoples, as the limitless becomes limited in taking upon flesh, in, 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 in wearing diapers, in crying and in needing his mother to pick him up, in doing those things, he is the image of the invisible God. He is born in human likeness so that we can see, touch, feel, and know his favor towards us. And I think, I really think, because the prevailing value of our culture is tolerance, right? Which is really just kind of like, I'm okay with you existing even though I wish it were otherwise. Right? Which is really like, kind of a, uh, I, I don't know, underwhelming at best. I wanted to use a, 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 another word, but I managed to refrain. Praise God for sanctification. Um, threw myself off there, um, right? I think because, because our prevailing cultural value is tolerance, this idea that, all right, like we can share the same space together even though it's wildly uncomfortable for me because of my great kindness to you, right? <laughs> I think, I really do think that sometimes we, when we look to Jesus, when we look to God, we feel like God has that attitude towards us. Where God is just kind of like, guys, you know, like, I've done the whole, like, flood the earth thing. That wasn't really that much fun. And so, you know, rainbow, yeah, and we'll try to figure it out from here, you know. I'll send my son, and Jesus is kind of just like, yeah, well, you know, sure, I'll go hang out with those guys. It's only 30 years. 
but it's funny. We laugh. We laugh about it now. But I really, like, I really do believe that that much of our Christian living, much of the way we interact with God, is characterized by a reality that's much more like that, and much less like Him rejoicing and exulting His God because He has the privilege, the the wonder, the joy to come, take upon Himself flesh, to bear the robe of righteousness, the garment of salvation, and to extend it graciously to to any and all who would come and and partake of those things, to drink of the living water without price, as Revelation would say, right? So here's the thing. This is why I'm just so unimpressed with the idea of tolerance and why I think ultimately that Christians are called far above and beyond tolerance, which is ultimately why our intolerance is, is really just kind of just kind of throws me off. Um, but anyway, we'll talk about that another time. You're not, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room this morning, right? It, God isn't the disappointed parent in, in, in the room that's just kind of given up, you know? Kind of sitting in the corner like, yeah, they're going crazy. I don't know what to do about it. So, whatever. Like he's, he's, he's that parent who goes, yeah, you know, things are kind of crazy, but Look at, how, look at how wonderful that child is. And yeah, they're not perfect now, but you know, there will come a day when, when they start, you know, changing their own underwear and when they start doing, you know, all, like, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room this morning, you're not tolerated by God. You are loved by God. And so here's, Here's ultimately why Jesus is rejoicing in God, rejoicing in his work, right? He's rejoicing because in verse 11 it says this, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So, I, I, again, this is just another situation where I think we read a verse and we go, okay, great. Because none of us, or maybe not none of us, but the majority of us in this room have never planted anything in our lives, you know? Um, and so there's, there's just kind of this, like, where, where do plants come from? You know, from Randall's, uh, Whole Foods, sorry, right? Hipster church, so. Um, right, I mean, but that's kind of, there's, there's, there's a sense of immediacy. There's no, there's no longing. There's no hope. There's no kind of like, man, I'm, I'm going to plant this and, and, and hopefully nature just does what nature is supposed to do because it's all random and... Uh, I'm kidding. Um, right? None of us have that kind of, that kind of frame, frame of thinking, but every single reader at this point in time is in an agricultural economy and here's what they would have known. Right? They would have known that when the rain falls on the soil, shoots will spring up out of the dormant roots of grass. Seeds that were sown in a garden or a field will start to grow. These undeniable facts of nature are ultimately what are compared to, to what the Lord will do to cause his seeds of righteousness and praise to spring up. 
So we're just saying, I'm, I've been calling us to rest this morning, right? To rest in, in the hope, love, peace, and joy that are afforded to us because of Christ, that we experience in the work of Christ for us, in spite of the difficulty of sanctification, of becoming more like Christ, in spite of the fact that we look in the mirror and we are less like Jesus than we would want to be. We are more sinful than we would ever have dared imagine. But we, like Jesus, can find great rest and great joy in knowing that God has the power to produce these unstoppable results. So righteousness and praise will sprout up before all the nations. The comparison ultimately presents for us a guarantee or a promise that this anointed one by the Spirit in verse 1, right, will bring about salvation and righteousness and its results, praise and righteousness. The exuberant praise that will spring up from our joyful response to God's great gift of salvation, those things will come to pass, where we worship Him imperfectly now, where we worship Him with difficulty now, where we worship Him and, and, and ultimately have to sort of bite or fight and, and battle off those things that we still want to worship that are of the world, there will come a day where our allegiances are no longer divided. Why? Well, because just as naturally as the seed produces a sprout, so naturally and so powerfully and so simply will the Lord do that in your life precisely because in Christ He has extended to you the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness. So we can find rest in this unfortunately often unrestful season filled with parties and uh, weird family members and and, you know, all kinds of other things that come up during this season. We can find rest knowing that what God decrees about our reality, about the future reality of all things, the, 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 the all things that Jesus has come to make new, we can know that what God decrees always comes to pass. So here's my sort of just kind of final encouragement this morning for those of us uh, who would consider ourselves followers of, of Jesus. I, I know for me this year, um, and probably for, for many years to come, should the Lord tarry or um, choose to keep me here, I, I've been somewhat discouraged because of where I perceive myself to be in that growth process. And there, there was a day, right? There was a day where these trees out here that line Montrose were not 100 years old. And they were a small and insignificant little seed that someone wouldn't have cared where it fell. Or even if it fell, right? And I think for some of us in the room this morning, especially just, I think some, some of it's by nature of being a young church. Some of it is by nature of of, uh, you know, just a, a general need for growth and Christian maturity and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. But I think for many of us in the room this morning, all we see is that tiny, insignificant little seed 
something worthy of just being cast aside or, or forgotten. And maybe we don't just see that in our lives. Maybe we see that just kind of in, in, in the whole of our reality and that, and that God has kind of promised us all these things that, that things are going to be good and that through, through Jesus things are going to be redeemed and restored and we look around and there's still people being murdered in the street and there's still all this other stuff taking place that we're just like, I can't even begin to comprehend how this happens in a world that is overseen by a good, righteous king. And yet I think this morning, again, our rest, our encouragement, our hope, our peace, our joy, our love this morning is found in trusting God when He promised us that, that these seeds will be oaks of righteousness one day. Right, this, is what, this is what verse 3 says. Let's remind ourselves, right? This is again, it's Jesus speaking. He says, I, I, I've come to grant to those who mourn in Zion, right? So maybe, maybe you're mourning this morning. Maybe you're with me and you look at this past year and you, you wish you had glorified God more. You wish that your life looked more like Jesus. You wish you loved your wife better, your child better. You wish that you were a better husband and father and, and, and member of the Christian community He's come to grant you beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. If your, fear, if your spirit is faint this morning, the Lord comes bringing to you a garment of praise that they may be called, that you may be called, that I may be called in Jesus, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He might be glorified. And here's the thing, when it comes to God's glory, He doesn't mess around. And so when he says he's going to see himself glorified through you as an oak of his righteousness, it's going to happen. And that's why Jesus proclaims these words in verse 11, as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So we've talked every week, we've concluded with who are we and what do we do in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, right? And this morning, I think, I really, do, I really do think, I really do believe that the Lord is calling us to rest. He's calling us to rest in, in knowing that this is how history ends. Revelation chapter 19 reads like this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so what the end of history holds for those of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus, the reception that we are invited into is the wedding reception of of the Lamb. And we, just like Jesus in Isaiah chapter 61, we, like Him, will rejoice and exult and give God glory. Why? Because it has been given to us to clothe ourselves in the righteous deeds of the saints. And remember, those righteous deeds aren't ours. We are His workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And so we get to rejoice. We get to sing a song of praise. We get to experience a reality in which we will hear the prevailing cultural narrative will not be one of God does not exist. God can't fix this, this, that, or the other. There will be no doubt because the predominant narrative, the narrative that will be proclaimed from the voices of a great multitude will be like a roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out together, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. And so brothers and sisters, this morning what we get to do is we get to, one, we get to rest in that sure, safe, secure confidence in not only His willingness to save, but His ability, His power to do it. But then we also get to now start the party. We this morning gather together and you know what we do together? We, we read off the screen together and we say hallelujah for our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. We sing together. We say go tell it on the mountain. Jesus Christ is born. He is our Savior. He has taken upon Himself flesh and He extends to you the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness at no cost to you for the sake of His fame and for the sake of His glory. And so my hope this morning is that as we take communion and as we sing a final song, my hope is that we would join Jesus in rejoicing greatly in our God and exalting the Lord together as we long for His return to make all things new. To reign and to rule in not only grace and mercy, but in righteousness and in salvation. And let us this morning, with the Spirit, and as Revelation 21 tells us, with the bride, with all of our brothers and sisters in all of history, in all of the world, everyone who has ever been touched by the grace and the mercy of Jesus, we together proclaim with them, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's do that by being reminded of Jesus' work on our behalf at the communion table. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you again for this morning, Lord, just the opportunity to gather together as your people. Um, Lord, a people who have been drawn together, not by affinity, not by um, sort of cultural maneuverability or a, a certain social status, but Father, as people who have been drawn together um, by the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus, who have been given a new identity, a new bloodline in which we belong to you as sons and daughters co-heirs to the kingdom with Christ. And I pray this morning that we will find rest in your presence. Lord, so often we, we are reminded that the gospel is about how Jesus has, has satisfied you, has made you happy. And yet, we continue to try to do it for ourselves. And that striving and that work is tiresome without Christ, without the, the safety and the security and the knowledge of his love for us. And so would you remind us of that at the table? Would you remind us, God, that um, this is something you took upon yourself joyfully for our sake? And would we long for the day, Lord, when we experience all of those things in their fullness, love, hope, joy, peace. 
and that our praise right now, although a shadow of the praise that is to come from our own lips, that it might be a shadow worthy of the lamb that was slain. So Lord, we love you. We come to the table this morning in great confidence in the person and the work of your son, Jesus. It's in in his name and in the power of the spirit that we pray these things. Amen.